podcast is a member of WGPRN, WildGamesProductions.com. Hello folks and welcome back to Darker Days episode number 14. I am your host Vince along with my faithful co-host Mark. Mark, how are you doing? Outstanding. Good evening ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, welcome to episode 14. Fun packed show for you tonight. Been away too long and it's good to be back. And that concludes the show today. Everyone have a nice day. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, 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 no. We have a lot of wonderful things to us for you guys tonight. Uh, we had a little lull there. The holidays come up here in the States, and uh, Thanksgiving just passed. And, uh, well, I was sick most of the time, so I had a horrible Thanksgiving. Did you uh, give thanks for your illness? Yeah, thanks for my illness. I, I, I got thanks for that. I lost, like, 20 pounds from puking nonstop. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It was a wonderful Thanksgiving. Uh, the week before that, I had no voice, so we couldn't record that week. You can blame the lull on me. Mark was roaring and ready to go and sat there daily waiting, refreshing and wanting to record, but it was all me, so you can all yell at me. Yes, blame the vomit, ladies and gentlemen. Blame the vomit. Wow, it was it was amazing. I, I got sick, lost my voice, Gained it back, had a convention to go to. Luckily, I was good enough for the convention. Went to the convention, got re-sick again, probably from going to the convention so quickly. Yeah. And <laughs> then, yeah, and then I and then I got sick into you know Halloween, yeah, <laughs> Thanksgiving. So, uh, well, we're back. And uh, Mark, why don't you reach down that mailbag because I know we got a ton of stuff that came in. Yeah, it's been about a month since the last recording, so there's been a thick and fast flood <laughs> of emails and messages coming in. First off, though, a big thanks and shout out to Phil Wheatley. Mm. Um, reclusive billionaire Phil, his, his generous <laughs> donations have paid for our server bills entirely now. So uh, he, he pretty much owns the show. Uh, anything you'd like to hear, Phil? Uh, you know the address. Yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> Phil does own the show as right now. This is the Phil Wheatley Presents Darker Days podcast with his two servants, Vince and Mark. <laughs> Uh, we've heard from Vergast again. He's been offering to help with the uh, Welsh pronunciations when oh. we get around to his secret frequency submissions on Anglesey. Uh, being a dirty seisnig myself, that might not be a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, Vergast also sent in a very cool little segment on playing effective antagonists as NPCs. So we'll be using that in, in an upcoming uh, Storyteller's Advice se- uh, segment soon. Thank you very much for that. Oh, thank you. Dr. Ether has been super busy with his Changeling ebook and his Vampire Chronicles updates, which you can find over at our forums under the thread titled The Endless Waltz. Mm. Some superb <clears throat> in-depth material there with plenty to inspire your own games. So head on over and give it a look. Uh, I just want to interrupt you one second, Mark, but I have to say it's excellent read, excellent read. Definitely take the time and go to his, his, his uh, I think it's a live journal, actually it's called, where he has all the information. It's really good. Take a look. Outstanding. Um, Aaron Frantal wrote in giving his support to the idea we mentioned an episode or two ago of having an entire episode based around madness and Malkavian. So he's a big vampire fan. So uh, you should dig tonight's show, Aaron. Yeah. Mike Buono sent in an utterly insane secret frequency submission about a woman who fed her daughter a man's head to cure her daughter's illness. We will definitely be using this in a future show, just that kind of thing. Uh, thanks for the, uh, for the heads up there. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Quincy Forder has been busy on the Gargoyles front. You'll have seen his posts, no doubt, on the subject at the forums. And uh, also sent a link to a fan supplement called Gargoyles the Vigil. Uh, you can Google that to check it out for yourself. Very cool. Yeah. He also sent us a fantastic article detailing how to bring a corporate twist to your World of Darkness games, setting games around player characters who work for various mortal or supernatural corporations and organizations. Very inspiring, very detailed. We could get some great use out of a feature based around this. Or maybe Quincy would like to record it as a Darkling and get on air himself. Yes, Darkling calls you. Yes, it beckons you. Uh, did you say uh, Beckett? 
Uh, <laughs> it beckons Beckett, we know that. Um, finally, Alex Walters wrote in sharing the details of his mixed splat World of Darkness game. Uh, we covered that topic a couple of shows back and asked for war stories, if you recall. Well, his storyteller had them all start as employees at Walmart, which I think <laughs> is a very clever and damn funny way to get the group together. Uh, the storyteller also wisely took a hands-off approach to the plot. Uh, as we know, no plot survives contact with the players. Mm. And uh, let the players control the flow of the game, kept the characters in the dark regarding lore about the other supernatural beings, etc. Uh, Alex says they took a darkly comic approach to the game, which worked extremely well. So uh, thanks for the, uh, for the letter you sent us there, Alex. It's always cool to hear about games that work out well. Cheers. And as always, we have shout-outs to the newest members of the forums. There's been a whole bunch. Uh, Typhus469, Nibiru811, Quincy Ford, a Spanish Inquisition. I didn't expect them. Malleus, Squig Herder, Edelmundo Glaze, Cannon Food, Sandchigger. Hey, Sandchigger, good to see you around, man. Uh, Phobos69, Stormcrow, Skarsgård, Bard95, Mr. Whisper, and Tritium. Welcome aboard, guys. It's welcome aboard one and all. Wow, Mark. Any more? Anyone else you got there? <laughs> Coming up. That was a long that's list. Not, that's not enough. <laughs> no, I demand more. Bring all yeah, your friends. I just made half those up, so you know. I mean. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I kidding. You did make half those up. <laughs> and I'd also like to give a special thanks to uh, Kim Possible in law. Yes, for keeping us running smoothly from day to day. Outstanding yes. stuff. And the forums look great, and uh, I like the new design. Yeah, very sweet. Let's move on to uh, news. Is your children, Mark. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I promise this week we actually have more news than the sound bumper itself. <laughs> we do, actually, yes. <laughs> Beckett's been busy. He's been super busy, yeah. Um, you'll all have heard, uh, doubtless, his Darkling number four, where he goes into detail on Monty Cook's uh, World of Darkness, but he's not done. No, Definitely. Uh, next week we'll be hearing more from Beckett on the same topic with Darkling number five, so you can check that out in just a few days' time. And speaking of Monty Cook's World of Darkness, uh, Nibiru is planning a PvP game set in Monty Cook's WAD. Uh, we were going to mention that at the other show, but uh, I forgot to put it in the show notes, so you can spank me. Um, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Sick yeah. fantasy, stop it. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, head on over to our forums, uh, look up Nibiru, and uh, get involved. And I noticed that Mirage Arcana finally had its first broadcast. Yeah, the first full show is up, um, featuring uh, the good old golden game Tunnels and Trolls. TNT. Yeah. Uh, it's an awesome opening episode. Glitches aside. But uh, Adrian, Craig, Alan, and Bob have dived into the game and show us how you can transplant its ideas uh, to PDF publishing and apply them to the Star Wars D6 game. Um, head on over to miragearcana.podbean.com and download their show now. Excellent. And uh, the Exalted... The all exalted vidcast actually changed over to a podcast now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Zorlak decided to uh, quit the the vidcasting business and uh, do the podcasting because people were in more demand, so they can listen to it on the go. I guess it's a little easier for everyone to listen to something than actually sit down and watch something. I don't blame. It's an easier easier format to uh, yeah. to handle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now uh, you can uh, see that exalted podcast at Podbeam dot com. I know he's having a little problems right now with his computer. He said he'll be back once he gets that result. He's got a few shows up, exaltedpodcast.podbean.com, like Vince says. And, of course, uh, Liquid Weird are still with us as well, uh, liquidweird.net. Uh, geek goodness, a plenty there. Ooh. Thank you, Mark. You're welcome. No, I meant the other Mark. Oh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we have some uh, White Wolf news. I didn't check it as of this recording today, but we have a nice little uh, game trade magazine. Was it 117 with a feature on Count Dracula? Count Dracula, yeah, rather cool and worth a look. Yeah, pretty funny. Um, but there's big news has come out from White Wolf, which mm. I'm sure everybody knows about. But if you happen to have not been following developments on the forums or have just been living under a rock, uh, the big news from White Wolf comes from their 2009 International Camarilla Convention last month, which I think was actually going on when we were recording the last episode, uh, I seem to recall. Uh, yeah, Eddie, Eddie actually had to take a break to come to the podcast for that. That's dedication. That's right. Um, you can find a full article at whitewolf.com, and you can go and see your footage from the convention uh, on, on YouTube. 
Um, but here are the main details. Uh, firstly, um, White Wolf are going to be releasing a new suite of digital tools to help manage your chronicles. Um, they've developed these along with Lone Wolf Development, the guys who created mm. Hero Lab. They've been describing it as a part automatic wiki, part storyteller dream, uh, which as far as I'm concerned is just players who do what they're told, but I'm guessing you can't automate that, so it must be something else. I hope this is, uh, I have actually have Hero Lab, and I did put a link in the forums. A couple people did download it as a demo. It's great for making up characters. I mean, the unfortunate part is you have to buy it, but it's hmm. excellent when it comes to World of Darkness character creation. Well, they were talking about having a series of interlinked, you know, hyperlinks, and you can have your chronicle management system going here and click on something and pull stats up and click on something else, and there's a, a map drops up, and you click on areas on the map, and there's your descriptions and information of what's in the various locations, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah. I guess it would be ideally linked into whatever PDFs are available from, uh, from White Wolf. It's still in the formative stages now, but it sounds very interesting. Yes. And apparently we're going to see it sooner rather than later. Well, cool. But does it order takeout for you? Uh, yes. Yes, you heard it here first. It will also order pizza. I'm going to have to uh, keep you uh, quoted on that one. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else do we have here? Uh, well, they're also drastically easing their oh, fan site rules under the dark pack system that they have. Basically, they're taking a step back from overseeing what fans want to have on their websites, giving fans a bit more freedom in uh, what you can quote and what you can display and how much of their intellectual property you can actually use. Um, for full details on that, go to uh, whitewolf.com slash darkpack for details, and you'll see uh, an FAQ there and downloads to help you get started. Well, they used to have such a, large, such a big restriction on everything. I'm glad they're uh, uplifting that a little bit and not becoming another Wizards of the Coast. Uh, it looks to be very free and, uh, and very open indeed. Yeah. Uh, they've also been looking at more closely at digital publishing in general. They're going to take advantage, they say, of the cheaper PDF native digital book readers. Um, so I, I think we're going to see a transitioning to, uh, to more digital publishing and digital releases in future. Uh, but they're also stressing that they'll never lock into one form of delivering their books. So print versions should remain available, I'm guessing, through some kind of print-on-demand system. Uh, well, some, if, if you listen to uh, Eddie Webb's uh, blog podcast he does go into great detail about this promising that he will they will do print on demand the books will still be available hardcover copy that but it's not something like lulu i don't i forgot what exactly what he said what they were using i don't think they have should have it sorted out but he said don't worry there'll still be some hard books and not everything will be going to pdf yeah, they want to keep both options open. I, I last saw on RPGNet, he said that it's moving at a glacial pace, but it's moving. So we'll see that come when it comes. Um, speaking of electronic interaction, they're also going to fully update their website, uh, which will be super cool to see, because <laughs> uh, it's a little creaky around the edges, but uh, it'd be nice to see that all souped up and zipped into the 21st century. Yeah, their their, their Y2K website is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't hear that uh, they're, they're wanting to capitalize, they also say, and this I find really interesting, on their vampire brands, making sure that people know that White Wolf are some of the premier developers of vampire-oriented IP. Um, you know, vampires are, are big again at the moment with TV shows and movies uh, in the resurgence. And it seems to be the case that White Wolf's influence on many of these media properties is actually fairly pronounced in some places, but it's not well known. A lot of things have just entered into the public consciousness without people understanding where they came from. And I get the impression that White Wolf are looking to take back a little ground there. Um, yeah. So next year, we're going to see The Gathering in New Orleans. Um, it's going to be a massive convention and meetup for fans of their products, whether that's Mind's Eye Theater, Old World of Darkness, New World of Darkness, Vampire the Eternal Struggle, or anything World of Darkness inspired. And they also build it as something for just fans of vampire stories in general. So that would be fascinating to see that uh, take off. And, Definitely. And, uh, yeah. This is a perfect time for them to capitalize on vampires, get people into the game, get people into the LARPing. I mean, as the original, I considered like the father of vampire gaming. You can shoot me for that if you want, but I think they're the ones that created this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, there was a game called Chill back in the in the earlier eighties that had yeah. supernatural creatures as protagonists, but uh, it never really hit the public consciousness. Never really got no. that lightning in a bottle feeling the Vampire the Masquerade did when it first broke in ninety one, ninety two. So no, I think it would be uh, cool to see them uh, get the sort of recognition that they deserve for the products they produced. 
Yeah. And speaking of LARPing, uh, for the Camarilla specifically, they're going to ditch the pyramid system. Um, they said they recognize it as a mistake and there has been too much bureaucracy and it needs to end. Yeah. So they're putting the reins back in the hands of the actual uh, LARP players and Camarilla fans. And one notable element of this I saw was allowing Camarilla games to be Old World of Darkness as well as New World of Darkness. Hmm. Which yeah. is nice to see that, that flexibility supported by the company. Well, yeah, I'm tired of that pyramid system and that stupid Amway. <laughs> uh, now this last point about Old World and New World of Darkness it spawned an insane amount of speculation on the internet that there's some kind of anniversary treat or special mm. edition re-release of Old World of Darkness material coming um, I don't know about you Vince but I haven't seen anything to that effect from White Wolf themselves um, but you know that's the internet for you you'd be surprised <laughs> that's all I'm saying <laughs> anyway, interesting times. Um, White Wolf clearly recognize that uh, RPG print publishing is in a tough place right now. Um, and they're moving with the times. There are still plans, like you mentioned earlier, for a print-on-demand of their various PDFs. And they said they don't plan to ditch print publishing entirely. But they've also said that they're stepping away from the supplement treadmill that used to dominate RPG game lines. Uh, you know, the idea that you'd have to have a supplement every couple of months and your game line would just eventually get massive and bloated. And uh, I think that's a great idea. As we've seen, they've been now releasing books as and when needed. So we haven't seen a book a month for Mage of the Awakening or, you know, uh, 50,000 different clan books for Vampire. Uh, it's, you know, quality over quantity. A high quality of recent releases, I think, shows that it's working. Uh, well, you know, there's a lot of people who are scared. I mean, I, I know a lot of people have been saying, well, I haven't seen anything on the release schedule. What's going on? Is White Wolf going out of business? No, they're not going anywhere. CCP is not putting them under the rug or swiping them away. If you listen to Eddie's podcast, he reassures you that White Wolf and CCP are working hand-in-hand hand as uh, their friends, pretty much. They, they love working with each other. They approached each other. It wasn't a corporate takeover or anything. So just relax and just uh, take it in. One thing that struck me from the guests we've had on the last few shows mm. is when we've spoken to them about, is there anything you're working on right now? Uh, they've all said, oh, I've worked on this and that. And then all of them have said, well, there's something else I'm doing. They've all kind of made it clear that they're working on products that haven't seen the light of day yet. So clearly, uh, White Wolf is still an ongoing concern, and uh, they're not being shelved as makers of a role-playing game material anytime soon. So, yeah, like uh, like you say, Vince, so we'll just we'll just roll with it and see what comes. Well, they have, they have a lot to on their plate. I mean, they have the uh, the online game they need to work on in CCP. I mean, with all the vampire stuff going on, they have the perfect time to capitalize in the next year or so. Mm-hmm. And they've also left us with a teaser for the future. Uh, all things are born of darkness. If you recall, that was the tagline that appeared in the back of the Geist book, and it got mentioned again at the uh, Camarilla conference. So, that, that was uh, yeah. That was in reference to Darker Days, by the way. Oh, of course. Oh, it's also obvious now. I know. Wait, that sounded like Derek. Oh, there we go. Was, was Is Derek there? I really couldn't comment. <laughs> for, 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 le for legal reasons. Urgh, damn you, most haunted staff. Anyway, that'll wrap up the news. Mark, where can anybody reach us if they want to reach us now? Radio at gmail.com. That was good. That was good. I know the long break, uh, you know, you're a little screwed up at the time. A little rusty, a little rusty. Yeah, I'll be working on it for the end of the show. That's right. Or you can visit us at uh, darkerdays.tk. <laughs> I almost forgot the website. It's been so long. <laughs> darkerdays.tk, wildgamesproductions.com slash forums with an S. Uh, and check us out on Facebook. Yeah, you can become a fan. How many fans do we have, Mark? Let's look. 20? Nearly 40. What, 40? Really? That's that's more than Britney Spears. <laughs> Well, it's more than my Britney Spears fan page, anyway. But, but yeah, okay. Let's go on to the secret <laughs> frequency. Everybody's favorite segment for this show. Hold on. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, today the Secret Frequency takes a look at demon dogs and their kin. This was submitted to us by Dr. Ether way back, um, so we're just getting around to it now. And essentially it deals with the origin story that inspired the Hound of the Baskervilles. For those who don't know, this is a very famous Sherlock Holmes story by Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, detailing a family supposedly haunted by a spectral hound that used to roam the moors near their home. Now, it's actually based on the story of Lord Black Vaughan, 
from the Kington region. I mean, Lord Black, how much cooler can a name get? <laughs> uh, he was a local lord beheaded in 1469 after the Battle of Banbury. And uh, when he was beheaded, his loyal black dog ran off with his head. Yeah. To this day, his dog can apparently be heard growling and barking in the top room of his house, Hergest Court. Uh, which is just Hergus Court alone is a house that is worth looking up on Google because it has an ancient history going back to Saxon times. Really fascinating. Um, anyway, legend has it that if the demon hound is seen, it is said to bring death to the family. Uh, and that's an aspect that people who know the hound of the basketball story will recognize. The evil dog is believed to still haunt the area to this day. Wow. Local people around Kington take the story of Black Vaughan and his dog very seriously. Many of them refuse to walk near Hergus Court at night or for some even during daytime. Some locals won't even risk driving past in fear that they might witness something supernatural. And previous tenants of Hergus Court have also seen the black dog in the house and heard the patter of dog paws. They've also seen the head of Black Vaughan himself hovering many times above the moat. And Black Vaughan and his dog have been sighted together walking in the direction of the church. Now, the connection to the church is interesting because when Black Vaughan died, he was buried in a tomb with his wife at Kington's local church. And after his death, his ghost arose from its grave and began terrorizing the area, scaring locals, upturning farm carts and slamming gates shut, which I guess was a big deal back in the day. Either that or Vaughan didn't have a very good imagination. <laughs> uh, at any rate, Black apparently appeared in the marketplace after his death as a black bull, charged into the church and totally devastated it. A plan was therefore put together to exorcise his spirit, uh, a plan involving 12 priests who wow. would gather their powers together and imprison his spirit in a silver snuff box. So one autumn night, the twelve priests went to the local church with a wise man from over the nearby mountains, many local villagers who were brave enough, brave enough to go, and a young mother with a newborn baby, pitting the power of innocence against the power of evil. It was a dark, cold evening, of course, and every priest had a candle, and so they waited and waited for the evil ghost of Vaughan to make an appearance. He uh, didn't disappoint them and appeared, extinguishing all the candles in one freezing gust. Well, the dozen priests soon dropped to their knees and all stopped reading from the Bible and fled in terror. Only the lone wise man continued, however. He didn't need a candle to read by as he knew by heart the required passages from the Bible. And by his devotion, the evil spirit of Black Vaughan was trapped in the snuffbox. The box was then buried for a thousand years at the bottom of Hergest Pool, with a huge stone placed atop it. And legend has it that the box is still there today. Mm. Of course, thousand years doesn't last forever, and one day time will run out, and the spirit of Black Vaughan will be freed once more. Apple carts, beware. But that, the snuff box is going to last a thousand years? Yeah. <laughs> That's one hell of a snuff box. <laughs> That's the idea. So somewhere in the uh, middle 2400s. Yeah. Oh, I'll be gone, so. Anyway, stories of black dogs are, are fairly common uh, in the UK. There's a very famous one around Glastonbury, which uh, there's enough uh, supernatural legends around Glastonbury to fill a dozen shows. Uh, and in addition, we have a, a thing here involving great cats, things like cougars and, uh, and pumas and that kind of thing. And now, you know, these things aren't unusual over in the, in the States so with your, your mountain lions and what have you. But over here in rural England, the idea of great cats roaming the countryside uh, regularly makes the news. Uh, in fact, there's one that's been sighted just about a dozen miles down the road from where I live. Mm. Uh, so, well, how are we going to fold, spindle and mutilate this for our World of Darkness games? Well, the obvious one, of course, is that it's a shape changer, a fairer of some kind. Uh, the use of silver to trap the spirit is a fairly strong bit of symbolism there that's hard to miss. So if you're using Old World of Darkness, uh, one of the Bastet, perhaps, or one of the skin changes from the New World of Darkness. But of course, Black Vaughan doesn't need to have been a shapeshifter of any particular kind, uh, at least not uh, one, of, one of the shifting breeds. He could simply have been a mage with advanced life magic that allowed uh, his ghost to manifest similar powers after death. Yeah, it could be a, a demon or spirit taking animal form that Black Vaughan himself never was human and his evil powers were simply a uh, used as a guise to propel himself into this eerie afterlife. Hmm. 
And if you like the mage game, uh, it could make an interesting paradox manifestation. Uh, the Black Vaughn himself is dead and gone, but his legend and his, uh, well, the fear of the man had worked itself into the local consensus so very strongly uh, that it manifested itself in various places and times due to blatant use of magic by those who should, who should know better. Um, I think uh, another interesting angle could be that these are cryptozoological aberrations that we've been seeing. Um, one of the origin stories that explains why we have big cats roaming the UK at the moment is that collectors uh, brought them into the country for personal zoos. Uh, the animals then died, or the uh, sorry, the animals then escaped, or the collector died, and the species are now roaming the countryside. Imagine if these creatures uh, have an origin similar to that. Of course, in a World of Darkness game, you don't want it to just be a cougar or a puma. You want it to be something far more exotic and far strange. So you can have a uh, an occultist keeping a, a menagerie of, of eerie creatures. And when he passes on, his creatures start to slip the bounds of their cages and run loose in the countryside around. Um, my favorite uh, interpretation of this, however, is that these great cats or, or black dogs could be a bleed-through from an alternate reality where their species is dominant. Um, now, people who know the Sandman comics uh, by Neil Gaiman from years ago may remember a story called The Dream of a Thousand Cats. And this, very briefly, was a story where cats were 10 to 15 times the size that they used to be, and humans were these tiny, tiny little creatures that were hunted like mice by the cats. However, humans had the power to dream, whereas cats really didn't. And eventually, the humans started to collectively dream together of a world where they were masters. And when enough humans were dreaming the same dream, it became real. And the world was turned on its head, and humans became the masters, and cats became the small creatures. And the story is about a parliament of cats that gets together regularly to try and convince all the other local cats to then themselves start dreaming, to turn the tables back again uh, to a time when humans are once more small and hunted. So, uh, the idea here then is that you have a world where this is the case, and such creatures are slipping between the cracks, uh, between realities, and from their world into ours. Mm. Either either way, though, uh, that's the uh, story as it stands on a demon dogs and their kin, the disembodied head of Lord Black, and his loyal demon hound. That's uh, interesting. I, I, I see Hunter written all over this, a nice Hunter story going here. Having them investigate and find to maybe try to find the box located if it had been disturbed, or you can even if, even vampire. The, uh, mm -hmm. the local prince of the area, maybe they, he figured out that he's risen and he's picking off the council and, you know, things like that. Have the local, yeah, I think, have the I think the hunter, hunter angle would be very good, especially if you have, the like you say, the box disturbed or the stone moved. Or, yeah, a silver box lasting a thousand years, yeah, it could become easily corroded in, uh, in half that time. <laughs> half that time? Maybe like a hundred years. <laughs> I think it'd be gone after that, Mark. But, no, in any event, I would definitely use these things. So, have fun with it, roll with it, and uh, that probably end the Secret Frequency for this week. Uh, we have a lot of ideas. Thank you, everyone, for submitting all those wonderful ideas in the forums. We have pages and pages of things in the forums. Yeah, and a, a similar large amount on the email as well. So, no shortage of ideas, and uh, keep them coming, and you'll hear them played on the airwaves uh, Yeah, as and when we get around to them. That sounds good. Hi, this is Mark from Liquid Weird. Join me at www.liquidweird.net. Geek culture, role-playing games, and anything else that kind of comes up that's related to geekdom. Once again, that's www.liquidweird.net. Okay, folks. Uh, that was our little commercial there with the uh, Liquid Weird for Mark's podcast, The Other Mark. And mm -hmm. uh, if you're interested in uh, having your podcast join the network and you're listening, just uh, hit it, come to the forums and uh, try to join up. See what happens. You never know. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Let's move on to the uh, old rule of darkness feature, or the classic, as Mark likes to call it. And we have a vampire feature tonight. Some house rules, and then the uh, dirty secrets of the black hand. Uh, Mark is going to go into the, really some depth about it. So let's start with the uh, house rules. Well, we're going to break the the barriers down here uh, between Old World of Darkness and New World of Darkness. Although a lot of these ideas tonight are, are finding their genesis in Old World of Darkness, in fact, um, they can all be used in both versions of Vampire equally. So if you're a rec Requiem player, uh, don't touch that dial. 
Um, yeah, first of the house rules is blood potency and generation. Now, in Requiem, the system of generation was replaced by blood potency. In Old World of Darkness, in Masquerade, generation simply measured the strength of your vampire's bloodline, how far away removed he was from the vampiric progenitor of his line, and in theory from Cain. In Requiem, blood potency simply measures the vampire's blood strength, and it can go up and down over time. So you very rarely get incredibly ancient, powerful vampires who remain powerful for the entire time. The process of torpor will reduce their blood potency. Now, what we're going to do here is we're going to take some ideas from generation and some ideas from blood potency and mix them up together. So for Masquerade games, uh, the idea of blood potency is that it just replaces the standard generation. It's a score that you rate from 1 to 10, 1 being weak blood, 10 being strongest blood. And you can slot it in very easily over generation. Uh, a blood potency 1 vampire equals a 13th generation vampire. Blood potency 2 equals 12th generation. Blood potency 3 equals 11th generation. You know, And as the blood potency goes up, the equivalent generation will go down. So a blood potency 10 vampire equals a 4th generation Methuselah. Hmm. Okay. Um, now, every vampire has a base blood potency, right? That's his basic level of blood potency, uh, their default level at which they, are, they remain at, or else being equal. Uh, now, this could be derived from their sire, so if you want to take the leaf out of uh, Generations book, you have a blood potency six vampire when he sires one of his children, that one comes in at one level lower, so blood potency five. Um, or maybe all vampires just start out with blood potency one. You see whatever flavor you like for your own games there. If you want all vampires starting out equally weak, just make them all come in at one, otherwise related to something else like the uh, blood potency of their sire. So your base, your, your base blood mm -hmm. potency, uh, that's your default level. Now, vampires also have a current blood potency, which may be lower than their base uh, due to torpor or other inflicted weaknesses. Normally, though, base blood potency and current blood potency will be the same. Now, the idea goes that as a vampire gets older, his blood becomes more powerful. So older vampires are weaker than younger vampires. So you can increase the base blood potency over time. And again, you're going to set the dial on this for your chronicle as you see fit. So you can increase it by one point for 50 years, one point for century, or one point per 500 years, or one point per 1,000 years, or whatever you see fit. Uh, basically, you're going to determine how fast do you want vampires to become more potent in your game. And also by uh, default, you're also going to thereby set the age of your most powerful vampires, right? So if you decide that it's going to be one point for every 500 years, that means your vampires with blood potency 7 and 8 and 9, they're going to be pretty old. <laughs> now, for Masquerade, if you use one blood potency point per 1,000 years, actually, you get an interesting uh, little coincidence there in that a one-point generation vampire will rise up to 10 points, Methuselah level, in 10,000 years. Right, which ties nicely into the legends of the first city and the first Methuselahs. Uh, a rough ballpoint figure was that the first city was created right at the dawn of human civilization, nine to 10,000 BC. So those numbers lock in quite interestingly there. But lower numbers might work better for most chronicles. Uh, like I say, you're going to set the dial yourself there. So age makes you stronger. What makes you weaker? Okay, The principal influence that's going to lower your blood potency, your uh, current blood potency, is going to be torpor. Right? When your vampire drops into torpor, his current blood potency is going to drop one point per year, or 10 years, or 25 years, or whatever you choose. The idea is that torpid vampires get weaker. Okay? So while your, your vampire might have a base blood potency of 6 when he drops into torpor, although that base blood potency remains the same, his current blood potency is going to drop. Every 10 years, it'll go down to 5, then 4, then 3, then 2, then 1, etc., now, if you, if you want to make torpor even more scary for a vampire, you could have torpor reduce their base blood potency as well as their current one, right? So once a vampire's current blood potency has fallen to one through torpor, each successive decrease would lower its base blood potency instead. So uh, a, uh, going with the idea of one point per 10 years, for example, a blood potency five vampire that fell into torpor, after 50 years, his current blood potency would be at one. Another 10 years after that, after 60 years, his base blood potency is going to drop to 4, and then to 3, and then to 2, to the 1. So after 100 years, uh, he's, his base blood potency has gone down to 1. So even when he wakes up, he's going to be a shadow of his former self. And this makes extended torpor a real terror for the ancients. Mm, think of Mr. Burns. Yeah. 
Shadow Warrior. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's actually sim- a little bit similar to what Requiem already does. Uh, and in Requiem, your blood potency goes down through torpor, uh, and that's a, that's a permanent loss that you got that you have to build up afterward. Now, when a weakened vampire wakes, uh, its current blood potency returns to its base level through primarily through feeding. Now, you can rule that each creature it drains to death uh, bumps its blood potency up by one until it reaches its base level. And you can complicate this by requiring vampires with higher base blood potency to feed from more potent targets. Uh, so for the elder vampires, simple human blood won't be enough. So, for example, a vampire with base blood potency of one to three could live on animals. You know, the weakest vampires can survive on the weakest creatures. Uh, from base blood potency four, five, or six, it's got to feed on humans. And from base blood potency seven, eight, nine, or ten, it's got to feed on other vampires. So, a truly powerful vampire that has just risen from torpor to regain all its power, it'll need to go on a massive spreading, a feeding spree. Um, to see how this number works in play, a vampire with base blood potency eight that has fallen to current blood potency 2 through torpor, will need to utterly devour six other vampires to regain all its strength. And you can raise these requirements, you know, maybe make it need to devour two creatures per point, or five, or ten, or whatever you like to set the right tone for your games. Uh, the higher the numbers, the more horrifying ancients are going to be when they wake from sleep. And again, that's a little riff on an idea from uh, Masquerade, the idea that when the antediluvians waken, they're going to be so possessed by hunger that they're going to have to devour most of their own clans. In fact, it might be an interesting angle to mean that to to just to, to rule that blood potency ten vampires not only have to feed on other vampires, but they have to feed on vampires from their own clan, their own descendants. Mm. A little uh, interesting riff there. So that's uh, blood potency and degeneration melded together, put in a blender, and spun around, and brought out into something new. Uh, I'm, wow, I'm, where I don't know where you might have found this, Mark, but that's an interesting uh, concept. I. <gasps> I like that. Well, I, I've seen something similar discussed on the White Wolf forums years ago when Requiem was only available in demo form. And uh, I had a look at that and went away and put some of my own ideas together. And uh, I've often, I, I like the idea of generation, you know, but I also like the idea of, uh, as we'll see with the next house rule, of mm-hmm. kind of breaking the stereotypes a bit, breaking the idea yeah. that all vampires are descended from an antediluvian. Uh, and by counting your blood potent, but counting your generation, you can figure out where on the vampire vampire you know uh family tree you sit and i like i like to take that away and put a little bit of uncertainty into it and a blood potency rule that allows the blood potency to go up and down with time and feeding and torpor and what have you uh yeah it it blurs the lines a little bit which you know for a horror game i think is always a good thing okay um moving on to some more house rules uh some interesting ones here breaking the clans and the disciplines and melding vampires into like one big group uh, I'm looking at our show notes here, and Mark has an excellent note here in the show notes. Think of uh, that scene from Interview with a Vampire when Lestat is asking Lewis to read the minds of the uh, the party guest. What happens, mm. Mark? He can't do <laughs> well, it, right? No, he can't. And what does he tell him? Lestat kind of shrugs at him and says, well, the dark gifts affect us all in different ways. So just think of you know one big clan and using different everyone having access to certain things just depending on how you were created. I kind of like this idea. Let's go into a little more detail about this. Well, essentially, it it does away with clans and it does away with clan disciplines. Um, Now, if you take a step back and look at all the various vampire myths from across the the world, especially the the Western myths and stories of vampires and those that have become popular through media and fiction, they all agree at least on one thing. Vampires are faster, stronger, and more resilient than mortals. So, you ditch clan disciplines completely, and instead, all vampires get one dot in the three di- physical disciplines. So for Masquerade players, that's Celerity, Fortitude, and Potence. And for Requiem players, that's Celerity, Resilience, and Vigor. Okay. And so all vampires are going to be faster, stronger, and more resilient. And additionally, they get one dot in another discipline of the player's choice. And this is basically their specific version of the Dark Gift. So one vampire might develop all specs after his embrace. Another might develop Majesty or presence if you play masquerade uh, another might have obtenebration or vicissitude um, now where how do you decide on what this discipline is well you could choose one of your size disciplines if you want to go with the idea that you've inherited some of his blood mm-hmm. or you could choose one unique to yourself um, these individual disciplines are just that they're individual um, to learn one that you don't have therefore you'd need to find another vampire who has it and learn from them and 
I would rule that this would have to come through drinking some of their blood first. Uh, and this kind of makes disciplines a bit more like personal secrets to be bought or traded, kind of like the way that rotes work in Mage the Awakening. Or they're things to be stolen through diablerie. You might specifically go and diablerize another vampire to get at that discipline that you know he has and that you want. And it also raises the significance of the blood bond or vinculum. Uh, if you're playing with the Sabbat, their version of the vinculum, uh, a, a blood chalice that's shared amongst members of the pack, becomes far more potent because now it's allowing members of the same pack to more freely learn each other's disciplines. Uh, finally, your vampire chooses a flaw. Now, you can take the easy route and pick a flaw from one of the clans or bloodlines, or you can devise your own with your storyteller's approval. Uh, now, there is a huge profusion of bloodlines and clans in the Old World of Darkness and in the New, so there are plenty of flaws there to choose from. So, you know, you might decide, oh, I want my vampire to have uh, vicissitude, but I want to have uh, a Toriad or a clan flaw. Or I want my vampire to have ore specs, but I'm going to make him look like a Nosferatu. Um, what it means is that you can never be sure what any given vampire's flaw is going to be. So essentially, we're taking the defining mechanical features of a clan, its disciplines and its flaw, and removing them from the clan, placing them in a toolbox, and then shaking them around. Um, now, it downplays the significance of clans even further. Vampires will instead be known by their personal and political affiliations more than their lineage. And this will be of particular impact in the old world of darkness, where clan ties were so strong. Uh, but I know that next time I run Vampire, this is going to be the system that I'm going to be using, simply because I just, I just like the idea, as I said before, of blurring the lines, re reinserting some of the mystery into the game, getting rid of the cookie-cutter idea that, well, you know, I'm a Malkavian, and I'm a Ventru, and you're a Deva. I just, just ditch that completely, you know? You're all vampires, you're all different, and nobody really knows what's going on here. <clears throat> I really like this idea because it goes in more in line with all the movie vampires and more of the history and the legend of, that we all know. Instead of going from the book, like you said, I really do like – I think I'm going to use this too, Mark. I like cool. this. Cool. Good stuff. Well, listeners, uh, try it out yourselves and uh, let us know what you think. Yeah, and we'll, uh, I'll email you too, Mark, and let you know how it is. You know where to find me. Um, mark at mark.com? <laughs> Darker days. <laughs> Radio at gmail.com. What was with the really bad stutter pause? Mark, you, the, you rusty? The curse of the weird chicken strikes again. Uh-oh. Bugak. <laughs> now on to the dirty secrets of the Black Hand. Mark, you know a lot about this book because you own it, first of all. But Yes. Um, dirty Secrets of the Black Hand is one of the most controversial books that came out for the Old World of Darkness. Uh, it's... Yeah, how to describe it in a single sentence. It's a source book that details um, a, another sect of vampires called the Black Hand or the Talmahera. Um, it casts them in a, a rather strange light, added in a whole bunch of new clans, some new disciplines, uh, crammed, according to rumor, several years of metaplot into one book, and threw in a really crazy uh, vampires from space kind of angle at the end. Um, oh, boy. Yeah, a lot of people didn't like it. Vampires a lot of people thought it was, it was in space. Uh, some people loved it, um, and I, I, I hold my hand up proudly and say, yes, I love Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand. Um, I, think there, I think there are elements from it that are incredibly cool, and if you take them out of the context of the book, you can see that they can be applied to any vampire chronicle um, to make it more awesome. Um, specifically, these are the ideas. There's, there's a new covenant you can get out of it. Uh, there's the idea of a, a city buried in the spirit world. Oh. There's these incredibly cool creatures called chattelings. And there's the concept of vampirism as a disease or a parasite. So let's look at the covenant first. Uh, a sect for masquerade or a covenant for requiem. The Black Hand or more specifically known as the Tal Mahera. Now, there were originally a group of vampires who got together with a group of mages, and there was a whole bunch of mutual magic and mutual embracing going on. And out of this unholy alliance came this group of necromancy-oriented, conspiracy-minded vampires. In the original Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand, they were this uber-conspiracy behind all the other conspiracies, supposedly secretly pulling the strings of the Camarilla and the Sabbat, um, which... Yeah, I could maybe do with a little less of that. Uh, but what made them cool was their defining philosophy. Um, I'd rather see them as just another group along with the other covenants or sects. 
So where the Sabbat was preparing to fight the antediluvians, where the Camarilla denied the existence of the antediluvians, the Black Hand, the Talmahera, claimed to serve them and intended to act as their servants when the night of Gehenna came. And it's this philosophy, this service to the ancients, that makes them worth using and gives the faction, gives the covenant its unique nature. Now, even if you don't use the antediluvians in Masquerade, or if you play Requiem where there are no antediluvians, here you have a covenant that actively serves ancient vampires. The Black Hand believed that several antediluvians lay in torpor in their city and communicated to them by dreams. They called them the Aralu. Now, I think this is an awesome plot hook to use. Who knows what these things are? Are the Aralu really vampire progenitors? Are they just ancient vampires sleeping? Maybe they're not even vampires at all. Uh, what are they doing trying to control a covenant of the undead? Are they even really doing so? Or are the Black Hand just wildly misinterpreting their dreams and saying, oh, yeah, the Aralu said to do this, but in fact, no, they're just crazy. Now, you can have a field day with this. Uh, lies wrapped up in confusion, wrapped up in mysteries, all forming the heart of this particularly strange covenant. And if you've used the Sabbat covenant that we sketched out a few episodes ago, the Black Hand make great antagonists for them. Both believe in the power of the ancients, but one group lives to serve them, the other to defy them. Uh, used in this way, the Black Hand are less about mad conspiracies and more about belief, more about service, and more about the dreams of the ancients. Now, I mentioned this spirit embedded in the in the uh, this, sorry. I mentioned a city embedded in the spirit world. That would be the the second point that I think is worth worth salvaging. Um, the original Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand had the Black Hand based in a city in the underworld that was supposedly nothing less than the spiritual reflection of Enoch, the first city, and the place where vampires came from. Now, you can use this, of course, as is, uh, although you might want to place it in Twilight instead, although uh, in the New World of Darkness, the underworld works particularly well. But what if it's something else? So you don't even need to use this as part of a Requiem game. This kind of thing works extremely well in Mage the Awakening as well, for example. So you could make it a lost Atlantean ruin embedded in the spirit world. If you keep it tied to vampire, you can have the Black Hand descended from vampires who were around during the Atlantean era. Maybe that's what the sleeping Aralu really are. Maybe the Aralu are actually ancient Atlanteans entombed who survived the fall. They can't emerge or even wake up for fear of paradox striking them or the exarchs noticing them there. But instead they extend control from their dreams. Maybe the city has got nothing to do with Atlantis or Enoch. Maybe it's got nothing to do with our reality at all. Maybe it's an intrusion from the abyss, a horrific tumor in our reality, where the Aralu are gulmoths sleeping at its heart, extending uh, the abyss's control through vampires. So in this version, the Black Hand are a sect of abyss-tainted undead, with all that this entails. Or maybe it's just some weird reflection of a supernal watchtower. Or an aspect of Metropolis, the city from the Jail of Night feature we covered a short while back. Maybe the city is only reputed to exist, and the Black Hand are searching for it. This gives the Covenant a long-term goal. The Aralu could be calling to them, summoning them back to their long-lost home for reasons that the Covenant only dimly understand, and may not like when they discover what's really going on. Now, Chatterlings. My favorite part of Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand. The Chattelings, also called the Nasna, they're what happens when you feed your ghouls vampire blood over several generations of a family. Eventually, the children are born as ghouls, with vampire blood already flowing in their veins. Uh, in Old World of Darkness, these were also called Revenants. They breed true, becoming lineages of inhuman creatures that serve the Black Hand. And the Chattelings, specifically, are born in this city in the spirit world. They're not born on our Earth at all, and they only come to our world rarely. Chattelings are cool, I think, because they're not human, and they never were. Unlike vampires, they never went through the embrace, but possess many of a vampire's powers and outlooks. They're not immortal, although they age very slowly, and they don't have any vestiges of human identity to cling to. Now, this doesn't make them horrific monsters, it just makes them alien and very strange. Chatterlings work best as antagonists or NPCs for the player characters to meet and interact with. You can play up their alien nature, their strangeness, and use it to remind the vampire player characters that they have something worth preserving, their humanity, where the Chatterlings have never had it. Maybe you can have a Chatterling NPC who is jealous of the player character's humanity. Or you can have a vampire who used to be a Chatterling, one of the undead who has never been human and cannot think as a human does, uh, or 
nor be bound by a morality that was never his own. Chatterlings make great addition to the game because of their horrific nature and their alien attitudes. Plus, they make very cool foils for the player characters and servants for the Black Hand as a whole. Use them as agents and minions before revealing the upper echelon members of the Covenant and their strange beliefs. Finally, vampirism as a disease or a parasite. Now, as I mentioned earlier on, one of the most controversial aspects of Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand was the recasting of the vicissitude discipline as an alien disease from another dimension. Um, a lot of people hated this, and I thought it was rather strange as well, but I think the general concept itself was very, very cool. And it wasn't entirely discarded in later editions of Vampire. It was later retconned uh, with the idea of vicissitude as a disease remaining. It just now proceeded from the eldest, rather from the far-off reaches of planet Zog. Now, you can get a lot out of this concept by extending it to vampirism as a whole. What if the Black Hand believe that their vampirism is due to an infection? or a parasite that dwells within them. If you've read the very cool Necroscope books by Brian Lumley, you've already seen this kind of idea in action. In those novels, vampirism is due to a parasitic creature that infests and ultimately takes over its host's body, granting it various powers along the way. Now, if you use the idea that the Black Hand City is some kind of freakish abyssal intrusion into our world, then you can have vampirism be an abyssal infection that is passed down through the embrace or a spiritual infestation, similar to the origin story that's used in Anne Rice's vampire books. Or it could be something more mundane, a genetic heritage, or blood aberration. Several modern vampire stories use this idea that vampirism has a medical cause that can be identified or even cured. Of course, this need not be the truth. It could just be what the black hand believe. But it will define their attitudes and behavior nevertheless. Do they see the Aralu as the source of their infection? Maybe they hope that the Aralu will awaken one day and give them a cure for their condition. The whole covenant, therefore, could be based around a faint hope that their sleeping masters are also their saviors. Mm. So there you are. Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand Redeemed. A new covenant, their mysterious city and its sleeping lords, their alien servants, and their beliefs about vampirism itself. Go ahead, introduce some dirty secrets into your chronicle and see where the dreams of the Aralu take you. Wow. Mark, that was a great review. Do you have any tips for using in your game or tell us how you used it or whatever? Just Well, yeah, the one of the elements that I use actually is, is one that I've not touched on very much here. Uh, there was a group of vampires introduced called the True Bruja. Uh, and I've not gone into them in great detail here, but they were basically a uh, an earlier version of the Bruja clan who had a discipline called Temporis, which allowed them to manipulate time and see the future and see the past. Um, so oh, I had a bunch of these vampires running around. Uh, one of them was a, indeed a chatterling uh, who had never been born human and became a vampire. And a mage in the future, in the, in the modern day, was scrying back through time, trying to spy on these vampires and see where they were in the past to thereby track their activities in the modern day. And he spent an incredibly long time in this trance, weeks locked in his sanctum, quietly zoning out and sending his senses back through time hundreds and hundreds of years, spying on these vampires and thought, great, I know where they are, I know where they're from, I'm going to wake up now and go and, uh, and go and deal with them in the modern day. He wakes up to find one of them sitting in his sanctum, oh. just quietly smoking on a cigar, you know, nice. making use of breath she doesn't need. She's like, yeah, we noticed you watching us and uh, we've been waiting around 800 years for this moment to come to pass. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice and evil. Good job, Mark. <laughs> yeah, it's good fun. He didn't learn his lesson, of course. He carried on messing around with time, and in the end, Wrinkle, the paradox spirit, got him. But um, that's a story for another day. Okay, let's uh, move along to our storyteller advice section. And uh, we'll, we have uh, some topic in the forum that we're going to pull up for a second. Hold on a second. There we go. And now it's time for Storyteller Advice with Mark and Vince. It's our official bumper, Mark. I can't forget that. It's great. <laughs> anyway, there I was, a, there was a, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Mark. Well, it's probably better not said. I'm just going to say I always think I'm in a 70s porn movie when that music comes on. <laughs> Sanford and Son, Mark. Sanford and Son. You remember that show? Yeah, we, don't, we don't have that in, the, in England. No. no, you just have, like, The Office. The weird version. Yeah. <laughs> and you have Gordon Ramsay. 
No, wait, we have Gordon Ramsay. Never mind. No, no, we, we've given him to you now. <laughs> He's your problem. <laughs> hey, actually, I do enjoy his shows, so bleh. <laughs> okay, uh, we actually had a topic here for the storyteller advice that uh, Saxon Matt brought up in the forums a while ago. Mm, yes, um, these a handful of questions, that, and they crop up all the time, um, these particular questions, so we figured it's worth giving them uh, some airtime and uh, sharing our thoughts with you. Sure. Um, Saxon Matt asked about uh, a few elements that have been cropping up in his games. And the first one was large-scale combats and conflicts. He says, uh, just recently I've run a game in which the players, uh, members of the 17th century Sabbat, crusade against a reasonably small English city in order to gain control. The details of that aren't as important to me other uh, than how do other people run with large-scale conflicts like this? Do you try to summarize large-scale fight scenes with a dramatic brush, or rather focus on smaller conflicts within that larger picture? Hmm. Um, my take on this is do both have the larger drama of the battle as a sweeping backdrop and then zoom in on individual scenes featuring the player characters uh, spend some time on one-on-one duels uh, highlight an attempt to tunnel beneath the walls of a keep uh, um, do a scene based on an attack on a cannon position another one based on the taking the enemy standard um, and for the larger backdrop scenes maybe you should have some pre-scripted scenes on index cards that you can hand to the players and have them narrate so instead of them just sitting back and listening to you describing what's going off on the hillside while they're uh, attacking the city walls, you hand them a little 3 by 5 card and say, right now, Bob, read this out in your most dramatic voice. Um, you know, and uh, when they finish, you can say, right, meanwhile, back across the battlefield, you come face-to-face with von Hildesheim at last. And, and this allows the players to be involved in the narration and then have the spotlight time on, them, on themselves. Interesting. I don't, I've never done large combat scale at all. I've never had the need for it. I mean, this is something I'm not used to doing. Now, I've done a couple in, uh, in Dark Ages games. We did a Dark Ages vampire game based around the Third Crusade. Um, so we got really down and dirty with the, the Siege of Acre. And, uh, and of course, you know, with, uh, with D&D fantasy games, you can take the, the similar approach for the, the paladins and their crusades and what have you. Uh, so, yeah, um, have the large-scale backdrop and narrate that and then zone the spotlight in on the player characters for the, uh, for the cool centerpieces of the action. That's the way I'd do it. Um, on, on a similar uh, scale, he asks about large-scale meetings and conclaves and rituals. Um, he says, Many times over the years I've had cause for player characters to get involved with large gatherings of individuals where the vast majority are obviously NPCs. I'd like to hear something discussing how to manage large numbers of NPCs and the obvious conflicts in agendas and opinions. How can players really feel immersed within that without sinking away below large amounts of narration? Yeah, that's that's a tough one, and mm. that is hard because as as the storyteller, you've got to be those you know thirty other vampires in the room or what have you, um, and it's a drain, it's a drag. Uh, there's two two ways to do this that I think, and one of these actually comes from uh, the Dark Sun Flipbook Adventures back from Second Edition D and D, where any time there was a scene involving large numbers of NPCs, they'd do what I just described with the index cards uh, for the battle, and there'd be parts for the players to to read out. Um, so the players would, in fact, portray these other NPCs and kind of hand them around the table and then do their own parts as well. Um, but for really large groups, you know, that doesn't work so well. Um, so my advice would be to kind of dodge the problem and try doing it as a lop or uh, an evening-long event like host a murder mystery. Um, if, for example, you have friends who are not gamers, but they enjoy this kind of thing, you know, amateur dramatics and stuff like that, I recruit them. Give them a little brief outline, you know, again, on a little 3 by 5 card, a brief outline of their character and what their character would know. Uh, no mechanics, you know, don't bother them with dots and dice, and just turn them loose. And, you know, usher your characters into the room, sit back and uh, enjoy the mayhem. That's not a bad idea to do that. I mean, I've never done anything in this large scale, and I don't think any of my narrations have been that long and winded and descriptive that I have to worry about my players sitting there going, ho-hum. That's just well, that's me. the other thing. Yeah, keep it snappy. I usually just straight to the point, describe it, narrate it, and then let them sit there and stir about it and tell me what they want to do. Yeah, and another way, I suppose, uh, would be to dodge the issue and uh, not have too many of these large-scale things. Uh, this goes back to one of the, the points we brought up a, a few shows ago um, about large supernatural populations. Uh, and th- this, I guess, is, is one, of the, one of the problems that having a large population of vampires and mages can cause in your game. It, that From time to time, you're going to have to justify that by having them all together in one place. So, yeah, you know, dodge the bullet, dial down the population number. But that's that's a you know that's a personal 
glitch of mine anyway. So it all depends on who the storyteller is and what he wants to do. I mean, if you want to spend exactly. the whole night with this big play narration, then go for it, dude. If that's what your players want, then do it. Otherwise, most players, I I don't know, my players, for example, well, they're not playing right now, but when they did play, don't really care for that because they're mostly those D&D type players. <laughs> Bumping up resource dots. I love that story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I killed him. I take his resource dots. You can't do that. Why not? I want to be more rich. Well, you can't. You find 20 gold. How many resource dots do I get? None? I want a resource dot. I, I argued with that for 10 minutes. I I give up. I go, you have another resource dot. I just gave him one because I got so annoyed. Well, that's very interesting because that kind of ties in rather nicely to the next point. Oh? Yeah. Um, fun versus storyteller integrity. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to suck it up and just roll with it and go. Yes, yeah. Um, to quote Saxon Matt, he says, I come up against this some more often than any other storytelling issue, and I think that it's perhaps the most important balance to achieve. Where do you really think that your integrity as a storyteller merges with the fun for the group? For example, in the past, I've taken my storytelling quite seriously. Uh, NPCs would have motivations and agendas and ways in which they achieve them. But nowadays, I'm more happy to bend those things in order to maintain high levels of fun, even if I don't feel that it's in keeping with what I think should really happen. Finding that middle ground, find that fine middle ground can be tough. Mm. Uh, I don't know, you've run across this in your games, I guess, Vince? Uh, some you just got to stick to what you get, stick to your guns or just give up. <laughs> <laughs> Short and sweet. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. That's all I could say. I mean, there's nothing. You can't sit there arguing about something, or you, you got to have to let the players have fun. Worry about fun more than rules. That's what I say. Yeah, well, my yeah, fun comes first always. Um, however, I do think that your fun as a storyteller is as important as that as the other players. You know, you're not running a service industry. Um, you're playing in a game in which you are an equal participant. You're you're, you're a player as much as the other players, even though your part is storyteller. You're, so you're by right all means, yeah, right. by all means, stick to your guns. You know, uh, the most yeah. important thing here, though, I think, is to be upfront about it. Tell your players beforehand the kind of game that you want to run. Um, and make sure it's the kind of game they're interested in playing. So you, know, you can tell them NPCs will be individuals with schemes and abilities that you may not like. And make sure they're on the same page as you. And this minimizes the chance of clashing expectations, which I think will probably kill more games than anything else. Well, I mean, I do spend some time on certain NPCs that I like, that I want to add more flavor to the story, but I'm not going to sit there and plot out this guy's birth and that guy's this and that and how many times this guy takes a dump in a day. I mean, I don't really care about that stuff, honestly. No, no. Uh, for, for me, the dump part. Yeah. <laughs> if I spend more than half an hour prepping a game, I get bored. Um, so, yeah. Short These things, they've got, to be, they, yeah, they've got to be the kind of things that you can wing anyway, I think. So, um, yeah. Um, finally, his, he had a question about player versus player conflict. <sighs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Well, so basically uh, what he's saying for this one, Mark, I'll, I'll take the lead on this one for you. Give you shoot, yeah. Give you a little rest there. So he's got two players that argue, right? One sticking to their guns, the other one sticking to their guns, both arguing back and forth, not letting down the other player, and it goes on and on and on. And he really wants to know how you would handle it, what, what would you do to rectify the situation, would you have them roll, or let them just play it out. My solution to this answer is I have two characters that constantly, no matter what game we play, it could be twiddlywinks for all it matters. And these two constantly find a way to get at it in the game, to yell at each other, to fight with each other, go on and on and on. And you know what I do? I let them play it out. They seem to have fun with it, and sometimes it's a good laugh, but it does get annoying after a while. I will at some point go, okay, make a decision instead of arguing, and they finally do make a decision. But they like to play it out, Mark. It's, sometimes it's fun to listen to. And the other players don't mind? They either add in there or they sit there laughing. Okay, so they're getting entertainment value out of it. Well, that's good. There yeah, you go. so it's just basically how you decide as, as your storyteller what to do. Hmm, how cool. would you do it, Mark? Well, um, yeah, uh, I'd be tempted to let them just have a cage fight, you know, and beat them into each other into a submission. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, ideally, I'd, I want the, to let them role play it out. Um, and if it, if it drags on too long, 
don't be afraid to kind of time out and go, look, guys, can we can we move this along quickly? You know, you don't want to have a two-hour argument over who gets to wear the head of Vecna, for example. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I think there, I think you can use it. You can do it by by roles. If you you know if you're using a social combat system, um, that's a viable alternative. Uh, then we have a house rule for that, which you know we can maybe share in a future show. Uh, but a simple way would be to take the approach of uh, what's called roll the dice and act out the result. Okay, so you don't. Uh, do the acting first. You do the rolling first, and then you take the you you portray what comes next. So maybe you'd roll opposed willpower or charisma plus intimidation or whatever first. Then you act out the results. So the loser in the, this social combat would get to act out his character losing the argument. Um, and if he did a particularly good job of acting out the results of the dice roll, you can award him a bonus experience point or restore a willpower point or similar benefit. And this is especially good with players who like a dramatic challenge they can sink their teeth into. I just want to say you got to be wary sometimes doing this, my method of doing it, because it has burned me once or twice when these two players would um, go at it for such a while and then they would actually start taking it personally. And, oh, yeah, no, and that do, would yeah. screw, <laughs> it screws up the whole entire game because then he'd be like, fine, I leave. <laughs> and this, like, his character would just go off on a right tangent and I'd be like, okay. My adventure. <laughs> yeah, there goes all that prep work. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've I've had uh, player versus player conflicts, or character versus character conflict actually, because the players are always happy about it. Uh, this resulted in characters killing other characters, and the players sit back and have a laugh about it afterward. You know, uh, so yeah, I think the important thing is if you're going to let it happen, and the players are going to get involved in it, they can't take it personally. You know. Okay, folks, that'll end episode fourteen. Uh, we're glad to be back. We'll be back on a regular schedule, our bi-weekly schedule. Mark. Should have a Darkling coming out next week, possibly, Mark. Am I right about that? Yes, Beckett's got one in the bucket, ready to share it with us. Darkling number five. All right, folks. Uh, if you need to reach us, darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. Go visit us on the website, darkerdays.tk, wildgamesproductions.com slash forums, or you can uh, visit us uh, at the Facebook uh, fan page. Just uh, type us in, you'll find us. Or uh, just leave a message for us on Skype at uh, AlucardD20, and that's also you can follow me on Twitter. This is Vince signing off for Mark. Have a good night, everybody.